Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caprola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, February 10th, and Saturday, the 12th, feature guest conductor Marin Alsip directing a program of Samuel Barber's Symphony No. 1, Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2, Lukasz Vondracek will be the soloist, and after intermission, Sir Edward Elgar's Variations on an Original Theme, the Enigma Variations. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto No. 2, a work lasting about 32 minutes. All his life, Rachmaninoff was prone to anxiety and depression, a condition often reflected in his sour expression, a six-and-a-half-foot scowl, Stravinsky called him. Family and friends knew a warmer, more outgoing personality, but they also encountered a crippling, dark side of his nature. The public never saw this. The low point, one so debilitating that it nearly robbed us of some of the most popular music ever written, came in the last years of the 19th century, just as his career was getting started. Rachmaninoff enjoyed great public success early on, both as a pianist and a composer. The brooding piano prelude in C-sharp minor he composed in 1892 at the age of 19 immediately became the calling card of a young artist's dreams and eventually a burden as well. Audiences wouldn't let him leave the stage until he played the work he eventually referred to dismissively as It. With the premiere of his first symphony in St. Petersburg in 1897 under the baton of Alexander Glazunov, Rachmaninoff's confidence and momentum, if not his entire career, suddenly seemed to fizzle. The performance must have been appalling. Rachmaninoff called it the most agonizing hour of my life. He hid in a stairwell with his hands over his ears. Glazunov was later said to have been drunk when he walked on stage. And the opening night review by composer César Cui could hardly have been worse. The symphony, Cui concluded, quote, would have brought ecstasy to the inhabitants of hell. For the next three years, Rachmaninoff wrote nothing. Sketches for a new symphony were abandoned, and work on an opera, Francesca da Rimini, was shelved. He continued to perform and even undertook a concert tour to London in 1898, but day after day he found that he was unable to compose. As he grew more despondent, his friends began to recommend various remedies. Twice he visited Leo Tolstoy, once by himself and once with the bass, Fyodor Shayapin, hoping that contact with the great novelist would shake him out of his slump and jumpstart his creativity. But the writer's self-serving platitudes discouraged him even more. You must work, Tolstoy told him. I work every day. When he and Shalyapin performed one of Rachmaninoff's songs, Tolstoy wasted no words in conveying how much he disliked it. Finally, fearing that Rachmaninoff was trapped in a serious depression, his family suggested that he consult Dr. Nikolai Dahl, a Paris internist who had become a specialist in curing alcoholism through hypnosis. Undone by Glazunov's drunken butchery of his first symphony, Rachmaninoff had begun to drink heavily himself. In January 1900, he began to see Dahl, who was also a gifted amateur violinist and cellist. He had started his own string quartet. The main objective was to get Rachmaninoff back on track, to restore his appetite and improve his sleep, to curtail his drinking, to revive his morale, and to get him composing again. 
The immediate assignment, which Dahl took very seriously, was for Rachmaninoff to write a new piano concerto. He had promised one to the London Philharmonic when he appeared with the orchestra in 1898. Through a combination of enlightened discussion and rudimentary hypnosis, you will begin your concerto. It will be excellent, was one of the mantras. Dahl succeeded. Although it may seem incredible, Rachmaninoff wrote many years later, this cure helped me. New musical ideas began to stir within me far more than I needed for my concerto. In April, Rachmaninoff felt well enough to accompany Shalyapin to Yalta, where they visited Chekhov, and on to Italy, where the singer made his La Scala debut in Boito's Mephistopheles. By July, when Rachmaninoff was ready to go home, bored without Russians and Russia, and get to work, he had a stack of sketches to pack, including advanced drafts for two movements of a new piano concerto in C minor. Those movements, the ones we know as the second and third, were finished in the fall and premiered at a benefit concert in early December. Although Rachmaninoff came down with a cold the day before the concert, and despite drinking mulled wine to cure it, he played magnificently. In the spring, he wrote the opening movement, a highly original piece of music that seemed to confirm his recovery. Then, just five days before the premiere of the complete concerto, Rachmaninoff suffered a temporary setback and was paralyzed by fears that his new work was worthless. The premiere, with the composer at the keyboard, was a major triumph, nevertheless, and the concerto quickly became Rachmaninoff's greatest hit, nearly replacing the beloved C-sharp minor prelude in the public's affection. The C minor concerto was his new calling card, and he performed it around the world. He played it with the Chicago Symphony when he made his debut in Orchestra Hall on December 3, 1909, the first of his eight appearances with the orchestra. The last was in 1943, a little more than a month before his death. With this concerto, Rachmaninoff not only overcame writer's block, but he found a new voice as a composer, one with a perfect knack for unforgettable tunes, dazzling pianistic effects, an effortless flow of ideas, and a very suave sense of style. Stravinsky, his close contemporary and antithesis as well, later called it a switch from a very young composer to a very old one, not meaning it as a compliment. The C minor concerto is proudly old-fashioned, particularly for 1901, the heyday of wild and radical new music by Debussy, Mahler, Stravinsky, Strauss, Ives, and Schoenberg. It's one of the crowning works of the 19th century, despite the calendar, and to the chagrin of the avant-garde, it quickly became the most beloved concerto of the 20th. The C minor concerto begins memorably with a soft tolling in the piano that grows to a grand fortissimo. The entire first theme introduced by the strings and clarinet seems in retrospect a very sumptuous introduction to the big moment when the orchestra falls silent and the piano solo takes the spotlight with a grand melody. It's a perfectly calculated effect, but it's one of the things that worried Rachmaninoff in the days before the premiere. When I begin the second theme, no fool would believe it to be a second theme, he wrote to a former classmate. Everyone will think this is the beginning of the concerto. For all the piano's continuous bravura, however, its role throughout this movement is more often that of ensemble player, accompanist, or even member of the orchestra than star soloist. This is one of Rachmaninoff's subtlest and most tightly knit movements. 
The adagio is in the distant key of E major. Beethoven, ever the pioneer, used the same unexpected key relationship between the first two movements of his third piano concerto, written exactly a hundred years earlier. Once again, the piano moves easily between its roles of soloist and accompanist. The clarinet has a big solo early on. The relationship between piano and orchestra is unusually delicate throughout, and the scoring is often as transparent as chamber music. The finale, beginning in E major and quickly swinging round to C minor, has many wonderful moments, but it's usually remembered as the brilliant setting of Rachmaninoff's most famous tune, the one that made a fortune for Buddy Kay and Ted Mossman, and not a penny for Rachmaninoff, as Full Moon and Empty Arms. The young Sinatra made his classic recording in 1945, two years after Rachmaninoff's death. Rachmaninoff was the first to recognize the melody's worth, and he uses it three times in the finale, each time freshening it with new touches, the last and grandest of them inspiring countless Hollywood composers. Ironically, Rachmaninoff, who ultimately moved to Beverly Hills, never wrote for films, even though his style was the industry standard for years. The last word is given to the piano in an outburst of glittering bravura. Program notes by Philip Husher on Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2. And now on to Elgar's Enigma Variations, a work lasting about 29 minutes. The temptation to improvise at the piano after a hard day's work surely never produced greater results than on an October evening in the Worcestershire countryside in 1898. Tired out from hours of teaching violin and writing music, that would never make him famous, Edward Elgar began to play a tune that caught his wife's ear. Alice asked what it was. Nothing, he replied, but something might be made of it. And then, to prove or perhaps test his point, he began to play with it. Powell would have done this, or Nevison would have looked at it like this, he commented as he went, drawing on the names of their friends. Alice said, surely you are doing something that has never been done before. Alice wasn't quite right. In terms of historical fact, Schumann's Carnival, for example, depicts a number of characters real and imagined. But she obviously sensed that her husband had hit upon something important, not only to his own faltering career, but for music itself. And so what was begun in a spirit of humor was soon continued in deep seriousness, as Elgar later recalled of the music that would make him famous, along with Powell, Nevison, and a number of the composer's other friends. On October 24th, he wrote to August Jaeger, the closest of those friends, I have sketched a set of variations on an original theme. The variations have amused me because I've labeled them with the nicknames of my particular friends. You are Nimrod. That is to say, I have written the variations, each one to represent the mood of the party. I would like to imagine the party writing the variation, him or herself, and have written what I think they would have written, if they were asses enough to compose. It's a quaint idea, and the result is amusing to those behind the scenes, and won't affect the hearer who knows nothing. The work went well. On November 1st, Elgar played at least six variations for Dora Penny, now known as Dora Bella, or Variation 10. On January 5th, Elgar wrote to Jaeger, I say, those variations, I like them. 
By February 22nd, he told Dora Bella that the variations were done and yours is the most cheerful. I have orchestrated you well. The orchestration of the piece took the two weeks from February 5th through the 19th 1899. Elgar then sent the score off to Hans Richter, the great German conductor known for championing both Wagner and Brahms. Elgar waited a long, nervous month for a response, but Richter recognized the quality of this music and agreed to give the premiere in London. For Elgar, already in his 40s and not yet a household name even in England, Richter's advocacy was decisive. The first performance was a great success for both Elgar and for British music. The critics recognized the work as a landmark, and although one was aggravated that the dedication to my friends pictured within didn't name names, he was at least honest enough to admit that the music stood handsomely on its own. The friends have long been identified, but a greater question still remains. At the time of the premiere, Elgar wrote, The enigma I will not explain. Its dark saying must be left unguessed, and I warn you that the apparent connection between the variations and the theme is often of the slightest texture. Further, through and over the whole set, another and larger theme goes but is not played, so the principal theme never appears, even as in some late dramas that is uh, Maeterlinck's L'Entreuse and Les Sept Princesses, the chief character is never on the stage. Those are words Elgar later came to regret, because the public's curiosity often overshadowed the music. Elgar himself only made matters worse by divulging that the larger theme fit in counterpoint with his original theme by telling Arthur Troit Griffin, Variation 7, that the theme is so well known that it is extraordinary that no one has spotted it, and by admonishing Dorabella that she of all people had not guessed it. Several melodies have been favored over the years, including God Save the King, Rule Britannia, and most often Old Lang Syne. But to date, the enigma still remains its place in Elgar's title. Dorabella and her husband, Richard Powell, once asked Elgar outright about Old Lang Syne, and he denied it. But by then he was so tired of the whole mystery that many doubted the sincerity of his answer. For full descriptions of the friends pictured within, we are indebted to the invention of the piano roll. When the Aeolian Company later issued the Enigma Variations in this newfangled format, Elgar contributed his own comments on this circle of men and women in his life. Here, then, follows the portrait gallery with some of Elgar's remarks. Theme this is an original melody, as Elgar's title boasts, born that October night in 1898 and without connections to anyone in the composer's life. It has been suggested that those important first four notes perfectly set the composer's own name, but as we shall see, Elgar saves himself for last. It's worth remembering, however, that when he wrote The Music Makers, an autobiographical Ein Heldenleben kind of work, in 1912, he recalled this theme to represent the loneliness of the creative artist. So here we are with variation number one, C-A-E, Caroline Alice Elgar, the composer's wife. The variation, Elgar writes, is really a prolongation of the theme with what I wish to be romantic and delicate additions. 
Those who knew C.A.E. will understand this reference to one whose life was a romantic and delicate inspiration. She was his muse. After Alice died in 1920, Elgar really never worked again. The little triplet figure in the oboe and the bassoon at the very beginning mimics the whistle with which Elgar signaled Alice whenever he came home. 2. H.D.S.P. Hugh David Stewart Powell played chamber music with Elgar. His characteristic diatonic run over the keys before beginning to play here is humorously travestied in the semi-quaver 16th note passages. These should suggest a toccata, but chromatic beyond H.D.S.P.'s liking. Their frequent partner was Basil Nevison, Variation 12. 3. R.B.T. Richard Baxter Townshend, who regularly rode through the streets of Oxford on his bicycle with the bell constantly ringing, is here remembered for his presentation of an old man in some amateur theatricals, the low voice flying off occasionally in soprano timbre. Dorabella also recognized the bicycle bell in the pizzicato strings. 4. W.M. B. William Meath Baker was a country squire, gentleman, and scholar. In the days of horses and carriages, it was more difficult than in these days of petrol to arrange the carriages for the day to suit a large number of guests. This variation was written after the host had, with a slip of paper in his hand, forcibly read out the arrangements for the day and hurriedly left the music room with an inadvertent bang of the door. 5. R.P.A. Richard Penrose Arnold was a son of Matthew Arnold and a great lover of music which he played on the pianoforte in a self-taught manner, evading difficulties but suggesting in a mysterious way the real feeling. In the middle section we learn that his serious conversation was continually broken up by whimsical and witty remarks. 6. Isabel. Isabel Fitton was an amateur violist. The opening bar, a phrase made use of throughout the variation, is an exercise for crossing strings, a difficulty for beginners. On this is built a pensive and, for a moment, romantic movement. 7. Troit. Arthur Troit Griffith, an architect, was one of Elgar's closest friends. The uncouth rhythm of the drums and lower strings was really suggested by some maladroit essays to play the pianoforte. Later, the strong rhythm suggests the attempts of the instructor, E.E., e., to make something like order out of chaos, and the final despairing slam records that the effort proved to be in vain. 8. W.N. Winifred Norbury lived at Sheridge, a country house, with her sister Florence. The music was really suggested by an 18th century house. The gracious personalities of the ladies are sedately shown, especially Winifred's characteristic laugh. 9. Nimrod. Nimrod is the mighty hunter named in Genesis 10. Alfred Jaeger, Jaeger is German for hunter, was Elgar's greatest and dearest friend. That is apparent from this extraordinary music, which is about the strength of ties and the depth of human feelings. These 43 bars of music have come to mean a great deal to many people. They are, for that reason, often played in memoriam, when common words fail and virtually all other music falls short. 
The variation records a long summer evening talk when my friend discoursed eloquently on the slow movements of Beethoven. The music hints at the slow movement of the Patatique Sonata, though it reaches the more rarefied heights of Beethoven's last works. Dorabella remembered that Jaeger also spoke of the hardships Beethoven endured, and he urged Elgar not to give up. Elgar later wrote to him, I have omitted your outside manner and have only seen the good, lovable, honest soul in the middle of you. The music's not good enough. Nevertheless, it was an attempt of your E.E. Jaeger died young in 1909. Twenty years later, Elgar wrote, His place has been occupied but never filled. 10. Dorabella Dora Penny, later Mrs. Richard Powell, and to the Elgars, always Dora Bella, from Mozart's Così Fan Tutte. Her variation, titled Intermezzo, is shaded throughout by a dance-like lightness and delicately suggests the stammer with which she spoke in her youth. 11. G.R.S. Dr. George R. Sinclair was the organist of Hereford Cathedral, though it's his beloved bulldog, Dan, who carries the music, first falling down a steep bank into the River Wye, and then paddling upstream to a safe landing. Anticipating the skeptics, Elgar writes Dan in bar five of the manuscript, where Dr. Sinclair's dog barks reassuringly in the low strings and wins fortissimo. 12. B.G.N. Basil G. Nevison was a fine cellist who regularly joined Elgar and Hugh David Stewart Powell, Variation 2, in chamber music. The soaring cello melody is a tribute to a very dear friend whose scientific and artistic attainments and the wholehearted way they were put at the disposal of his friends particularly endeared him to the writer. 13. The only enigma among the portraits, just asterisks in place of initials, and romanza at the top of the page. The clarinet, quoting from Mendelssohn's Calm Sea and Prosperous Voyage midway through, points to Lady Mary Ligon, who supposedly was crossing the sea to Australia as Elgar wrote this music. She wasn't. The drums suggest the distant throb of a liner, Elgar writes. Although Elgar eventually confirmed the attribution, it has never entirely satisfied a suspicious public. Dora Bella claimed that in the composer's mind, the asterisks stood for My Sweet Mary. 14. E.D.U. Edu was Alice's nickname for her husband. This is his self-portrait, written at a time when friends were dubious and generally discouraging as to the composer's musical future. Alice and Jaeger, two who never lost their faith in him, make brief appearances. The music is forceful, even bold. It's delivered with an unusual strength known best to late bloomers, the defiance of an outsider intent on finding an audience, and the confidence of a man who has always wished to be more than another variation on a theme. A parting word about the title. The work wasn't at first called Enigma. Elgar used the word for the first time in a letter to Jaeger written at the end of May 1899, three months after the score was finished. Enigma is written on the title page for the autograph manuscript, but it's written in pencil and not by Elgar. When the Chicago Symphony introduced this music to the United States in 1902, the program page listed it only as 
Variations, Opus 36. And finally, tracking down the enigma. In 1953, the Saturday Review sponsored a contest for the best solution to the identity of Elgar's enigma. The top prizes, the composer's daughter, Carice Elgar Blake, was one of the judges, were awarded to the Agnus Dei from Bach's B minor Mass, the trio Una Bella Serenata from Mozart's Così Fan Tutte, the slow movement of Tchaikovsky's Patetique Symphony, and God Save the Queen. None, however, seemed particularly convincing, and the search continued. In 1976, Theodore von Houten proposed Rule Britannia, which includes a phrase that is nearly identical to the opening of the enigma, and should have been obvious to Dora Penny, of all people, as Elgar remarked, because the British penny was engraved with the figure of Britannia. In 1984, Derek Hudson showed even more persuasively how a phrase of Old Lang Syne fits Elgar's theme and many of its variations. In 1991, Joseph Cooper, a British pianist, proposed a new solution. He claimed he stumbled upon the answer 30 years ago at a performance of Mozart's Prague Symphony in Royal Festival Hall in London, but chose to keep it a secret. As he followed a score during that long-ago concert, Mr. Cooper noticed midway through the slow movement echoes of the opening of Elgar's Enigma Variations. The two passages aren't identical rhythmically. Moreover, Mozart is in G major, Elgar in G minor, but they are strikingly similar. There are other connections. Two weeks before Elgar invented his theme at the piano, he had heard the Prague Symphony. Mozart's symphony also was the closing of the concert of June 19, 1899, when the Enigma Variations were given their first performance. Although Elgar authority Gerald Northrup Moore hailed Cooper's solution, other scholars, Elgar lovers, and puzzle fanatics remain unconvinced. Program notes by Philip Busher on Elgar's Enigma Variations. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.